former middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful Math Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Allison, and today I'm here with Tom Redman. Tom is an elementary math specialist from Montana. He's someone I know pretty well at this point. We've been working together for about a year and a half, and I'm so excited to have him on today to share some of the work he's been doing with his team in Montana, and they have some great results. And specifically today, we're going to talk about a very popular book. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of it, Building Thinking Classrooms. So, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yes. It's been a long time coming. I know in many of our conversations, I've said, you have to come on the podcast. And so we're finally here. So, Chrissy, what made you finally decide to actually buy and read this book? I know, because you told me about this book several times. And to be honest, I'm not reading many educational books these days. I just honestly find a lot of them to be pretty dry. And I feel like I have a pretty good handle on best practices in math education and coaching. And so I've been spending a lot more of my learning time on learning business skills uh, for running an online business because that isn't something that I've known a ton about. I didn't go to school for it or anything like that. And so it wasn't so much at the beginning that I like, it didn't sound interesting, but just that I wasn't necessarily like prioritizing educational books at the moment. But you mentioned it to me and then I heard about it in at least three different settings. In conversations with other educators across our country, like different places, different scenarios, some teachers, some leaders, and everyone was excited about it. Like it just seemed like something that was very sticky. People kept talking about vertical, non-permanent surfaces. And I was like, what the heck is that? And so because I could tell, I was like, this is really catching fire. Like there's a lot of momentum behind this book. It made me intrigued. And I'm so glad that I did decide to read it because it's the opposite of boring and dry, as we'll talk about today. It's been a really fun read, a really easy read. And I think there's just a lot of great information in there and great ideas for schools. So what made you decide to read it? Like, how did you hear about the book? 
Yeah. So actually a long time ago before the book was published, like 2017, my my friend, good friend and mentor, Dan, was telling me about this conference and this presentation that he went to about this guy talking about how big of a deal using whiteboards is. And I really like totally blew him off. I was like, that doesn't sound super exciting at all. And then this book came out and I had other friends that teaching colleagues that had just raved about building thinking classrooms and that I had to read it. And you had mentioned these vertical non-permanent surfaces, and it's way more than just using a whiteboard. So I dug in and I've read it a few times and been able to try out a lot of the strategies that Peter suggests through his research. That's awesome. So you've known about this book for a really long time. Well, for those who haven't, in case there's anybody listening who hasn't heard about the book yet, I was going to do a really quick overview, just kind of give a sense of what the book is all about. And in a nutshell, this book is really about how to increase the amount of thinking that students do in math class. And honestly, like I was amazed at what the research says about how much students are not thinking in a typical math class. And we'll get more into that when we are talking about our takeaways and like what stood out to us. But the first thing that struck me was just the sheer amount of action research that Peter did over the course of 15 years. So this book is packed with his practical, concrete findings about what helps students think more in math classrooms and then like why they work, which is just fascinating. And so he shares what he and his team discovered across 14 chapters, 14 optimal practices for thinking is what he calls them. And he breaks them into four toolkits, which I don't think it's necessary to go into right now, but he not only shares the practices, but like how he recommends you implement them, which one's first, which one's next, and so on. And just some like really actionable you know, ways to take this information and bring it into your classroom, bring it into your school, bring it into your district. So, okay. So what was one of your biggest takeaways? Yeah. I, th- I think for me is the framework that Peter describes really captures a lot of the math pedagogy that has really captured my attention in the last decade. It really consolidates the thinking of some of the prominent math leaders across the country, like Dan Meyer and Graham Fletcher talking about three-act tasks, Joe Bowler talking about growth mindset, and to see these things in action that aren't directly referencing those. It's not separate from those, but what his work does is delineate a framework for pedagogy that draws out student thinking in a way that it's so different from traditional math instruction, but it's really attainable for teachers. I've done a lot of work with three-act tasks with teachers. And while I think they're super powerful and exciting and engaging, they can sometimes feel unreachable for teachers. And Peter really attends to that well and is able to articulate how we can use thinking tasks directly from our curriculum and just getting kids thinking about the mathematics. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask you more about something you just said, because I know that you have been working with at least one of your teachers to try out these strategies and like build a thinking classroom in your school. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So first of all, like, how did that happen? How did that come about? But then I would love to hear like how that experience was different. It sounded like you were saying maybe that was easier than working on like introducing three act tasks. So I'd love to hear more about just the difference 
when Building Thinking Classrooms came out, I was just actually leaving the classroom to take this math specialist role. So I didn't have the opportunity to experiment with it as a classroom teacher, but with lots of opportunity to be in classrooms, co-teaching, model teaching, sometimes needing to fill in and substitute, I was able to experiment and play around with these teaching practices. And then one of our fourth grade teachers, Kathy, she's amazing. And she was really intrigued by the book. She actually came with me to see Peter at a conference and we were both just excited and eager to implement these strategies. And we worked together to co-teach an entire unit and really tried to implement as many of these teaching practices as we could, but really wanting and needing to do it within the context of a regular, typical classroom and following our curriculum that we had just adopted. So, so a lot of those new, brilliant, creative ideas like three-act tasks or like new number talk strategies are like separate from curriculum. And so even if teachers get engaged and invested in them, they kind of move away and lose focus. And because they aren't the emphasis of our day-to-day, it's hard to make those sustainable. But Peters talks about thinking tasks as really just curricular tasks that engage kids in thinking. And so rather than doing three-act task, our teacher had worked with some non-curricular tasks like Peter suggests to get kids engaged in the format of using um, vertical non-permanent surfaces and visibly random groups. And then we literally were able to just pose the first problem in the textbook and say, go work with your group and watch kids dig in and engage in these tasks in meaningful ways and then like slowly escalate the level of sophistication of the tasks we were giving them. Mm. And how did the class change throughout the unit? Like, did you notice a change in how students were acting or just like their behaviors in terms of learning the math? Totally. This was really fascinating. I remember coming in, my job has like various other responsibilities. So there's one day that I had chatted with Kathy and we weren't going to do the building thinking classrooms because there's like something else that needed to be done within the curriculum lesson plan. And so I walked in and we were like trying to do like a traditional lesson. And it just struck me how many kids were not thinking. And then another day, I I literally timed it and within five minutes, every student was actively engaged in digging into problem solving on, on grade level content. So such a stark difference from kids mimicking or all these other studenting behaviors that are really not thinking to engaging at, at their level. Yeah. And since you mentioned it, that was something that really stood out to me was what Peter shared about this idea of studenting. So first of all, the concept of studenting is like such a great way to describe it. I remember being at my school when I was a teacher and at the end of the year, they had this opportunity for teachers to volunteer to shadow a student for the day. And so I shadowed a high school student and followed them from classroom to classroom. And that was when it struck me how much a student could go through the entire day not thinking. I saw it with my own eyes in all different subjects. There were so many times where the student could just sit and wait. And if they waited long enough, the answer would be given to them and they could just write it down in a space. And so while I wasn't surprised that the amount of thinking was pretty low, 
I was actually kind of floored by the data. Let me share some of those stats. He said 20% of students spend 20% of their time thinking, and 80% of students spend 0% of time thinking. This is across, I think, 40 classrooms that he collected data, and this is like the average. And so what are they doing instead of thinking? He calls studenting, as you mentioned. So that is a combination of slacking, stalling, faking, mimicking, and maybe trying the problems. But in a building thinking classroom, 93% of students were thinking the entire time, and 7% were thinking 50% of the time. Those stats are crazy. And what I love about this is seeing it in action with that reference and frame of mind of thinking and non-thinking behaviors. When you're teaching a lesson and then you realize kids are mimicking and you're like, oh, it just really hits home that like my kids aren't thinking. How do I need to change my instruction to make sure that kids are meaningfully thinking and engaged? And really these strategies, really starting with toolkit one, are super powerful to get your class to have 93% of kids thinking, like really thinking. And the way he shared how they came up with each practice, I also thought was really interesting and innovative because he talks about how students are just so used to school going a certain way and just the institution of school and just how math class has been forever and ever. And so As he was trying to figure out what are the optimal practices for thinking, his starting point was always to do the direct opposite of what the institutional norm was. So I'm wondering, would you be willing to like share an example of one of the things that you all tried that was the direct opposite of what you would normally see in a classroom? And then how did students respond to that? And what impact do you think it had? Oh, I think that's a great question. Our curriculum was talking about this constant difference idea. And the the structure of the lesson was like, go through each of these problems and then kind of talk about them. And instead of going through these all as a class, we sent kids to their vertical non-permanent surfaces and they worked in their groups of three and solved each of these five problems. And then at the end, they're like, wait, all of these have the same answer, like weird. And then they really thought deeply about why do they have the same answer? That's weird because all of the all of the problems are different. And then they could start coming up with predictions. And I think seeing that in a more traditional format where students are presented a problem, they talk about it, they are presented the next problem, they talk about it. There's lots of kids that are disengaged. With all of these other studenting behaviors, slacking and stalling and mimicking or faking it and not actually engaged. We're going to these surfaces in groups. They have a hard time disengaging because they're standing with their group and kind of compelled to share their ideas. Yeah. So let me break it down a little bit for people who haven't read the book yet, because I think we forgot to define vertical non-permanent surfaces, right? (laughs) So that just means exactly what it sounds like. Vertical, meaning up and down, like they're not writing on a desk. 
that's horizontal surface. And then non-permanent being something that you're not writing with a marker or a pen on paper, something that can be erased. So like a chalkboard, a marker board, something like that. And what Tom was talking about is that the format in a building thinking classroom, several of the practices we're talking about together here, but one of the big ones is having students standing while they're doing the math instead of sitting. So that is direct opposite of the institutional norm, right? Students in rows, students in chairs, writing on desks. So he's flipping it to say, now we're going to stand instead of sit. Now we're going to write on vertical surfaces instead of horizontal. And then what you were talking about is Instead of teaching, quote unquote, at the beginning of the lesson, we're going to let students do the work, do the math, and then we're going to actually do the teaching part or the consolidation at the end, which many of us are probably familiar with that if you've done React tasks or the five practices, like those kinds of things. So that one's maybe not as much of a shock, but I can't emphasize enough to me how fascinating it was to like see how taking these things that have just become the norm in math classrooms and just flipping them on their head had such an impact on the students. And that is because in some cases, he said, it's not just because there's something about that specific thing. Sometimes it is like I can see how standing up would keep you more engaged than sitting down. But other times he said, it's really just that the old way they associate with not thinking. And so to break that habit and to form new habits, we have to shake it up enough where they can have a new experience and have new thoughts about the experience. Yeah. One one of the things that I've heard Peter say in a webinar that I don't think is directly in the book, but really kind of captures that is he talks about triggers for non-thinking. And if we have this framework of thinking about students as are they truly thinking or are they doing one of these other non-thinking behaviors? One of the biggest triggers to get students to not think is to open your textbook. And that's so often what happens at the beginning of a lesson is open your textbook and that turns kids' brains off so quickly. So easy change for that literally is to take the first problem and present it as a task separate from the book. That's one of the things that we did experimenting with this is take the problems from the worksheets and just write them on the board. And that was enough of a difference for more kids to engage. Yeah. So Chrissy, we've gotten to chat a lot about Peter and our, and our conversations. And so I've shared a lot of my excitement about him. What's another one of your takeaways? I'll tell you, one of the chapters that stuck out to me the most was chapter two about strategic grouping. And I found it fascinating when I read it in the book, because in the book, he talks about different ways that we traditionally group students in our classes. And we, we do so for strategic reasons. So some of those reasons are educational goals. So we might want students to learn from each other. And so we purposefully put certain students together that we think can learn from one another. Sometimes it's social. Um, we want groups to be diverse. We want you know, different socialization. In high school, he says a lot of times students self-select their groups. And in his research, they did a lot of experimenting with what would be the optimal practice for thinking. And what came of it was this idea of visibly random groups, as you know. So in K2, it's putting students in pairs. And in third through high school, it's triads or groups of three. And so I could 
picture this. And I thought that was really interesting and something I would love to try out with a teacher and see. But I got even more excited about this idea when I heard Peter talk at a summit session. And I actually pulled out some quotes from what he said because I thought they were so, so powerful. So I'd like to share some of those. And what he's, what he was speaking to in the summit session was how this idea of random groups and visibly random groups, having the students see that they really truly were random groups, the power of that on student self-efficacy, which you were mentioning earlier. You were speaking of that in terms of something that we all want to see is like building students' confidence, building their self-efficacy. And he was talking about how this simple, powerful practice can be used to build students' belief in themselves while giving them all access to rigorous grade-level tasks. So here's what he said. He said, one of the significant milestones on this journey from low self-efficacy to high self-efficacy, the milestone is that the student has to meet a teacher who believes in them. When a student does not believe in themselves, they have to first meet a teacher who believes in them. And then he said, and how do we show students that we believe in them in a thinking classroom? Well, it turns out one of the primary ways is random groups. That totally random and totally visible and frequent way of randomizing students actually communicates to students in powerful ways that we believe in them. And what struck me was just like, I hear teachers say so often that they believe students can do it. And then when it comes to the lesson, their actions don't necessarily match that. In the planning meeting, they might even say, I don't think my kids will be able to do this. My kids are this many years behind. That's something I talk about a lot. I have a lot of resources on that. I have a lot of other episodes about that. And so to hear him tie this practice about random groupings to students' belief in themselves. So awesome. He goes on to say, That students' lived experience in classrooms, especially elementary classrooms, is that they get labeled and then the labels are used to group them. And that this is what students told them because they interviewed 300 elementary students. And he said, after grade three, so eight years old and up, every single one of those students could tell us why they were in the group they were in. Everyone, they all knew what the label the teacher had assigned to that student and why they were in that group. Random groups takes that away. And in another part, of, he said some quotes from the students, which were like, she thinks we're all the same. Otherwise, why would she put us in random groups? He believes we can all do it. Otherwise, why would we all be given the same problem? And so it's like walking the walk, not just talking the talk. That if we say we believe all kids can do it, we say We think everyone can do rigorous grade level tasks. We think everybody, all of the students can reason and they're all problem solvers and they're all critical thinkers. Then we should be giving them all tasks from their grade level content, all the opportunity to solve the same tasks. And so I love this format because it is founded on this idea of giving all the kids an opportunity and pairing that with differentiated support that they might need but showing them we believe in you. And through showing them that we believe in you as teachers, it builds their belief and their confidence in themselves. I'm off my soapbox now. I love that. 
I have to say that seeing visibly random groups in action is what will get buy-in from teachers. It really makes a huge difference. And this is one of the things that I think that you really have to dive into these building thinking classroom strategies because it sounds risky and it sounds like it contradicts all these other beliefs that we have. Like, oh, I want to pair this student so that they have somebody who can help them. Or I want to pair these students together because they'll challenge each other. But doing those things is sending the message that we don't believe in all students. And when I've done visibly random groups of three in classrooms, kids just go. You might think, oh, that well, that student doesn't work with anybody. I'm thinking about students in a classroom that teachers are worried about their behavior, worried about participating. And I can't always put my finger on it, but for some reason, doing a visibly random group and saying, there's your group, go, those kids all just get started. Peter talks about eliminating social barriers and reducing social stress and visibly random groups really makes that happen. So I really encourage teachers to try it. And there's lots of different formats to do that. Like there's now group generators that you can open a tab and type your kids' names. What Peter does that I think is really simple is just drawing cards out of a deck and having three of each to be groups. But the faster that you can do that, the more likely they are to just get started with whatever task it may be. One of the things about these visibly random groups that really jumps out at me is kind of connecting back to your comments about equity, Chrissy. One of the behavior books that that really resonated with me is called Lost at School. It's more about behavior than math, totally. But I relate that to thinking about there's so many kids that seem like they're lost in math class. And we see kids disengage without a first attempt. And then it's so, so hard and so frustrating for teachers that are trying to reach them, but can't move past that. And what I see in visibly random groups is like you're describing, Chrissy, that students are believing like, oh, this teacher thinks that I can do this. So I'm, I'm going to like do some things to try. And then they have this collaborative group of three. And I, I've seen kids that the perception is that they, they struggle engage and share brilliant strategies that help build to new learning and build confidence. There's one student in particular that Kathy and I have been talking about that he really had low self-confidence and would say things like, I'm not good at math and really had that mindset about himself. And I would definitely credit Kathy and her work this year, but credit some of the strategies from building thinking classrooms that allowed him to access and see that he had and could add value to students' conversation about math and that he could apply his understanding. And now we're like nearing the end of the year, but he's regularly coming and asking like, I know this about math, but I don't know this. Can you help me? And he's just super curious and eager to now build skills, which is... a huge transformation from the beginning of the year. And that's an anecdote about one student, but I see that happening and that need to happen with kids that are maybe marginalized in math. Totally. And reading the book gave me hope and hearing you talk about your experience putting into practice brings even more hope to my mind. I just feel like 
Before the pandemic, there was already such a sense of urgency about improving math across our country. And then the pandemic hit and remote learning happened and we were hearing so much about learning loss and just how do we accelerate learning, right? So I know a lot of teachers and leaders are feeling that pressure to catch kids up. And and not only that, but to like meet the needs of all our students, like the student you're talking about who maybe had low self-confidence or just all the various needs that our students have. It's like even more pressing now and has just been been magnified given everything that's happened the past couple of years with COVID and everything. And one thing that I think was throughout the book, but was maybe subtle in a way or like not called out so specifically was this idea of equity that we're talking about right now. And I think the whole premise of the book is that kids can do it and let's find ways to enable that. Let's find ways to bring that out of them. And sometimes I think when we start off by having a format where we're giving all students the same problem, there can be this misconception that there's no room for meeting students where they are and there's no room for meeting different needs and differentiating. And so I just wanted to highlight that a little bit because I think it was, like I said, this thread that actually goes throughout the book, but maybe might not be as obvious at first. But one of the practices or several of the practices go into how you differentiate for students in this format, how you, you'll probably know the language better than me, Tom, but like how you choose the next problem they'll have after the first one and how you ask questions to different groups and how you like support different groups and different individuals so that they're all able to learn. But that part doesn't all look the same. And then there's even a couple of chapters about assessment that are just amazing and just brilliant, I think. The way that he suggests collecting data and using that to generate a grade, I'm not going to go into the details here. If you haven't read the book, if we haven't convinced you by now, like go and get the book. You actually need to read it to get all the, the nuance out of it. But they did so much research to see all these different ways of collecting information about what students understand, helping the students themselves understand what they understand, and then finding more equitable ways to generate a grade that's actually really aligned to like standards-based practices or mastery of content and not just a point scale where more students end up with lower grades. So like he goes into it in those chapters, but the whole thing, like I said, from the way the groups are set up to the actual content they're doing to the assessment, there is this thread of equity throughout the entire book. Absolutely. You were talking about all like all the different pieces. And one of the things that I think is fantastic about each chapter is there's this summary that has macro moves and micro moves. But all of those, I think you're describing not explicitly addressing equity, but are absolutely equitable practices. One of my favorites is how he describes keep thinking and stop thinking questions. Because we talk a lot about what questions to ask kids. But in this format of instruction, there's kids that should be asking the questions. And Peter does this awesome job of describing two types of questions and questions that are like, am I doing this right? Or is this wrong? Are really just trying to get the teacher to confirm their pathway. And 
really as soon as that question is answered, yes, no, or the teacher like giving another strategy, the student stops thinking. And so differentiating that from key thinking questions that are more like, we need some clarification around this task. Then the teacher can give more parameters, but then the students are engaging in in the problem solving with each other. I mean, it's just a great book, right? Oh my gosh, Chrissy, there's like so many things about building thinking classrooms that I could say. And teachers have to read this book. And I've now read this book like four times. And I just can't get enough because the way that it gets you to look at a classroom is so powerful. And now as a math coach, I can walk into a classroom and just see like what percentage of kids are thinking. And it just gives me some ideas on how to support teachers in getting their kids to think. And the strategies that he provides are super tangible. They're not complex. You don't have to go research a three-act task and do all this preparation. Like Everything is right there. You just have to draw some cards and send kids to whiteboards to work. It's powerful. Oh, I'm so excited about this book. I mean, I've known for years that engaging kids in thinking is like the biggest lever in a classroom. I mean, I was convinced when I read the summary of the Tim study and what they found was present in the pedagogy of the highest performing countries. Although it was like different formats and like this is a different format, right? Building thinking classrooms is different than the problem-based learning that they use in Japan. And like, but what they all have in common is the kids are actually thinking about the math. And so I just love that that's what this book is about. And that, as you said, it's so practical and it just sounds so simple. Use the curriculum you already have. Use the problems you already have. Use a deck of cards and try doing it in this different way. And so I want to close out by just asking Tom, as being someone who's read the book four times and someone who's implemented it with teachers in classrooms at your school, what tips or advice do you have for teachers or leaders who are listening who are excited about the book, who want to try it out? Yeah, just any guidance you would have for us. Yeah, I think actually when you start reading the book, if you haven't already, Peter captures it so well and definitely stick with his advice. So he's got these 14 teaching practices and then he breaks them down into different toolkits. And the first toolkit is these first three practices that are the most powerful for changing the environment of the classroom into thinking. And if you as a teacher or if you're a coach and want to get teachers to do this, reading those first few chapters and getting them to dive into these three is absolutely the most powerful. I know that and I've heard Peter say, you can't dabble in, I'm going to try this strategy a little bit. I'm going to do these random groups because if the other pieces don't fit, you're still in that traditional mode. And so he describes, if you do visibly random groups and you're still going to the textbook, that's not enough of a change to change what students are doing. They're still going to assume their social roles in their groups and have their level of engagement that was before. But if you couple visibly random groups with working on vertical non-permanent surfaces and working on rich tasks, even if they're direct from a curricular resource, those things together are powerful. And that's what really changes practices. So that would be my primary recommendation is to dive in. And one more thing, Chrissy, that I think would be super helpful in terms of 
starting to roll out some building thinking classroom ideas. One is just following Peter. If you if you Google Peter Liliadal or join some of the Facebook groups about building thinking classrooms, he is presenting multiple times a week across the country. And if you can catch a webinar, I've been able to sit on on multiple webinars and, and you sat in on the summit one and it shares his research in a new way that can get you excited about implementing these again. And also his research is constantly evolving. He's learning new things and able to add little tidbits that make implementing building thinking classrooms more practical. So awesome. Thank you so much for introducing me to the book and advocating for me to read it and for taking the time to come on the podcast and share some of the big ideas and some of your takeaways, but also to be able to couple that with your real life experience of implementing it is just so valuable. I'm sure this was just so, so helpful for people who have been hearing about this book or even who have started reading it, but not yet taken that step to implement. Just thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Chrissy. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.